Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news. My name's Dan Wood. I'm Ravi Abbott. And every week we bring you a special guest on the show as well. And for episode number nine, what a big one we've got this week, Mr. Mike Clark. Yes, this guy was, I think, last of the mics. We've had quite a few <laughs> mics, haven't we? Mike Overload. Mike, yeah. Mike Mania. Mike Mania. But um, he was with Psychosis from the start of Lemmings all the way to, you know, Destruction Derby. So he was there when the first PlayStation arrived, when they were getting into the 3D technology and stuff, so... We'll get some background on the uh, life and times of Cygnosis, even some stories about his offices getting burgled and the original <laughs> XPS1 prototype, Microcosm. We get the inside story yeah. on that, you know? It's obviously... I think Microcosm's kind of up there with um, Rise of the Robots, isn't it, really? It's kind of... Yeah, it's one of those <laughs> really hyped <laughs> titles that kind of... Well, didn't deliver. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so we'll have Mike Clark on from Cygnosis in around 35, 40 minutes from now. Uh, special shout we need to do then, Ravi. Yeah, we've got um, some guys that have messaged us that are enjoying our show, and they also have their own show. It's called Let's Talk Retro.com. These are James and Colin. And Colin seems to be a Commodore fan because he's hugging a C64 on the front page. Good work, Colin. Yeah, and they've got a little series called Car Boot Mayhem, which... Uh, it's what it is, going around <laughs> car boots and looking at stuff. But they mentioned the Lexibook Cyber Arcade, which was our Argos Arcade we oh, mentioned yeah. last week. They've actually got a review of that. So if you want to check those boys out, letstalkretro.com. And uh, while we're talking about plugging websites and stuff as well, we've had about 4,500 people listen to our show now. Yeah, we that's do have crazy a... weekly. <laughs> <laughs> we do have a Facebook page. Um, that currently has 111 likes, <laughs> which is pretty lame. Yeah, we need to kind of transfer those uh, <laughs> listeners onto Facebook. So uh, if you want to link to our Facebook page, either just search for The Retro Hour Podcast yeah. um, or link to our website, theretrohour.com, our shiny new website. Actually. Yes, yes, I've given it an overhaul <laughs> and uh, it doesn't look horrible anymore and we're adding new stuff every day. So we've got, you know, photos, links to our YouTube channel, mm-hmm. You know, links to other podcasts. So We are going to be at a few shows and stuff over the summer, so good way to keep up with us and find out where we're going to be is on Facebook, so search for the Retro Hour podcast. Like our page, show your support and all that. We much appreciate it. Yeah, see our ugly mugs on the page. <laughs> Frighten them off. Yeah. <laughs> right then, this week's news story now. Let's start with a pretty big one. This kind of came out the blue. The Raspberry Pi 3 has arrived. Dude, I've just bought a 2. Like... What the hell? <laughs> well, this was rumoured for a couple of weeks, but everyone thought, no, they can't just put it out in the market like that. How, you... how quick's the time been between them? It's like not long, is it? It's like half a year or something. Well, the yeah. Zero came out in like November, was it? Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't longer. I think the two probably came out about a year ago. Okay. So it seems to kind of on like an annual schedule then, doesn't it, really? Yeah. Um, but this new model, uh, and you're not the only person that said to me, oh, I just bought a two. I know about three people that literally bought a Raspberry Pi 2 in the last like fortnight or so. Um, but this new model, and it retails for, you know, the same price as the existing one, um, in dollars, $35, or in pounds, £25, with, uh, it's minus VAT. Uh, but it's got some quite nice specs. 1.2 gigahertz, 64-bit quad-core ARM CPU, 10 times the performance of the Raspberry Pi 1. Uh, this one's also got built-in uh, wireless and Bluetooth as well. Oh, wow. That's good, because I don't have to use those little dongles <laughs> taking I can never up get my them USB working. space. Yeah, my, I can never get them working. The, yeah. You know, and Cody and stuff, can never get my Wi-Fi working on that. So having um, yeah, built-in Wi-Fi, you know, Bluetooth, I guess, you know, if you're doing projects and stuff with it. That's, uh... Yeah, that's really good. And I've heard that they're really good for emulation of Dreamcast and um, Saturn games. You know, when the other ones weren't so good, the Raspberry Pi 2s. Well, we're getting to the stage now, I think, you know, where with it being a 1.2 gigahertz quad-core you can pretty much emulate all the old systems on that, can't you? Yeah, yeah. And so. and they're saying here, 
8 million units have been shipped to retailers. And that means that the makers of Raspberry Pi are now saying we're the biggest selling British computer ever. My which, word. Which was the other one? What did you think it would be the BBC Micro? or Spectrum, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. got to be the Spectrum, hasn't it? But um, the Raspberry Pi's taking its crown, eh? Yeah, the cheap price. <laughs> and the kind of, uh, you know, uh, really available hardware is... Well, I actually ordered a couple of them because I normally have this problem when the Raspberry Pi comes out. I always like to buy them because they're so cheap. And, you know, mm. I use them for, like, Cody. And uh, I want to do, like, a video on RetroPie emulation. Yeah. Um, but the problem I have is normally as soon as they come out, within the first hour, they're out of stock for, like, three weeks, aren't they? Till the yeah, man. Run. Like, I really wanted a Zero. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had to end up spending a lot more money on a two. Well, I think now what they've said is, though, this time round, they've actually intentionally made, like, four or five times more than they usually do because they're kind of, you know, anticipating this massive demand for it. And I logged on yesterday. I got mine from a CPC. Okay. Probably about two hours after the announcement, and it said in the show you little stock counter, mm. and they had still about 1,200 of them in stock. Okay. So, so it was going cause... down by the second, but... Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I'm using my old uh, Raspberry Pi B, you know, the first model... Yeah. I'm using that. I'm making a, a net radio yeah, you that's yeah. uh, going to be with an Arduino as well. And then I'm using my two for Cody, which is a, a, a naughty way to watch TV channels. <laughs> Cancelled your Sky subscription, yeah. didn't you? But yeah, I think, you know, the Raspberry Pi is a great machine. I've got five of them now. <laughs> five, like, yeah, right. Like... You can start a cluster. <laughs> well, I've got an idea of, so I'm going to put my, I've got my number two in the living room at the moment. I'm going to move that into the bedroom where the number one is right now. Yeah. I'm probably going to put one of the, yeah, the original one in my office. And because I love Twitter, yeah. but I always have like Twitter opening the tab on a browser and forget about it. And later on, people like, you know, I tweeted you before. And I turn the alert stuff on my phone because it gets a bit annoying. What I think I'd like to do is have a little, just a small, maybe 19-inch monitor mounted on the wall, a Raspberry Pi that shows Twitter just like a news ticker all day. Media centre, mate. By, That's yeah. great, yeah. Just Twitter scrolling all day long. So, And I found out one thing. Um, headless is a word that's mm-hmm. used with Raspberry Pis now, and those are Raspberry Pis without a monitor. Yeah. So ones that, you know, headless computing, you can... Uh, virtually connect to it and kind of do all your stuff and leave it to do it. Well, I know guys that use them for like, you know, torrent C boxes and all that. Yeah, and they yeah. just plug them in, you know, especially now they've got built-in Wi-Fi, you don't even need anything, do you? It's like, no, you could just have them, you know, behind a monitor and then you just connect virtually and do whatever you want. <laughs> well, I, I had another idea as well because, um, you know, Aminet, yeah. the Amiga's, you know, software repository. I think it's actually the oldest, like, or, well, it was the biggest in the 90s, wasn't it? It's definitely one I of think the it was one of the biggest sites online, actually. I think it I was mean, the biggest until yeah. the App Store launched from Apple. Um, but they haven't got a UK mirror at the moment, I don't think. Okay. So I thought you could probably download the whole of Aminet and put it on, like, you know, <laughs> easy fit on a terabyte <laughs> hard disk, couldn't it? Yeah, I yeah. could host an Aminet FTP mirror on a Raspberry Pi and just leave it in the corner of my room. Yeah, yeah, you could, yeah. I just suppose you could run a BBS off it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like, they're so cheap, they use, like, I think, let me check it, might have, how much power it uses on here. It's something very low, though, like um, like four or five volts. Well, I, I found the more dongles that you plug in, the, mm-hmm. the, the kind of small power supplies for phone chargers will stop working, and you'll get that little square. The rainbow thing. Yeah, the rainbow square <laughs> in the corner, and then a crash will occur soon. <laughs> I, did, I didn't know what that was for ages, because I actually got my first Raspberry Pi from Maplin. Yeah, and it came with a power supply, but I kept seeing that. So obviously they're not putting one powerful enough in there. Yeah, well, I had to get you know an upgraded fat HTC USB to you know power supply for the wall. Well, I've just noticed actually on the uh, Raspberry Pi official site they're recommending that this is a bit more power hungry. It mm. is still a five volt micro USB power adapter, but they recommend two point five amps rather than two amps on this yeah, one. Yeah, that's. So. I think it's the amps that are the difference with it. it needs to be a bit beefier, but. Um, 
Yeah, I think, you know, the Raspberry Pi, we've talked about it quite a lot on this show, but it's probably the most exciting thing in computing right now for me. Yeah, well, there's another exciting thing, which is, well, I don't know if it's exciting <laughs> or annoying, but um, Kanye West, who uh, has talked about retro computers before, mm. two years ago he mentioned Amiga in an interview with um, Zane Lowe off BBC Radio 1. I missed that. What, what did he say then? Do you remember? He was talking about himself, which he does quite a lot, and he was saying how he wanted to be amazing like the amiga when it first came out that's what he says at the end of the interview as an american that's quite rare to hear isn't it yeah yeah yeah. he was like the commodore amiga (laughs) but um he now wants to label his new album turbo (laughs) graphic 16 that's going to be the name of the album after his favorite console that he had when he was a kid now i will admit i can't i didn't used to mind his music like about 10 years ago. I haven't really rated his recent stuff all that much. Mm, but the Wire was good. Yeah, well, yeah that was an amazing yeah, sample. Yeah. Shaka Khan, didn't that? I remember. Yeah. But um, he's not really something we normally talk about on our show. But I think you're looking at TurboGrafx-16 and talking about the Amiga as an American. You've got to be quite into the scene, actually, to understand and know about that. Because it's quite obscure, isn't it, the TurboGrafx-16? Yeah, totally. But also, it sounds like it was a bit of a retro. Yeah. If he's mentioning all these old machines, you know... We should try and get him on. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he will. We'll tell him we've got a TurboGrafx-16 for him to... <laughs> so if you're listening, Kanye, um, theretrohour.com, you can get us through there. Or just type it on Twitter. I'm sure we'll find out about it like yeah. Mark Zuckerberg did. Well, just ask him. <laughs> now, there is something big coming up in London that kind of took me by surprise this week. Uh, the Guardian newspaper are hosting a special evening dedicated to Amiga Power magazine. I really think there's something going on at the moment where... This gaming, retro gaming is becoming popular. Look, you got Kanye, The Guardian. This mm-hmm. is a, a full event yeah, uh, in London, you know, celebrated by Guardian Live for Amiga Power, which actually, Amiga Power wasn't one of the biggest magazines. No, because... it was, I think you had like CU and Amiga Format one, way bigger. So it's an interesting choice mm. why they picked that one. But this, um, this event's coming up on Thursday, 21st of April um in london uh, the scott room the venue is called and it runs from 7 p.m to like 30 p.m so it's 90 minutes and um they haven't really revealed too many details of who's going to be there they said they've tracked down some of the original staff we'll be there won't we yeah if, well we're, we're hoping we to be tickets. there yeah so um i think at the time recording this tickets will be on sale now and we will pop a link in the show notes but it's only 10 pounds um if you want to attend it and ravi and i are hoping to go down as well and uh, the guardian's games editor keith stewart is um organizing this so i think i think keith must have been like a, a fan of the maybe yeah because he says working with darren from read only memory publishers and mm-hmm. those are the guys who are doing the bitmap brothers book that we ran about oh, okay. the other day so it's all kind of interconnected you know and i think we'll be going down with trevor dickinson the ae on people and stuff yeah and david know. pleasance from uh, ex-commodore hopefully yeah you know, yeah the ex-commodore uh, uk manager so you might it be... should be a good laugh if you any of you guys want to come down and have a pint with us in London. Exactly, before we get the train back at 11. <laughs> yeah. Don't keep us too long. <laughs> well, if we catch it, who's sleeping at St Pancras. <laughs> now, this next one is a pretty sad story, isn't it? Uh, yes, this is a, another guy who has passed away in the games industry in the UK, and this is uh, Fergus McGovern from Probe Entertainment. Mm-hmm. And you, you remember Probe with uh, Mortal Kombat, yeah, Die absolutely. Hard Trilogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alien Trilogy. Big publisher back then, weren't they? Yeah, and Mastertronics as well, he was part of. Oh, was it? Well, who actually just went bankrupt last year, Mastertronic, I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. November or so. But um, it's been a pretty sad year so far, like the start of 20, 2016, for the amount of famous people and like 
even in just in our industry, people have passed away. Yeah, and... it's, it's been a very strange year, yeah. actually. Lots of iconic people have gone. But, uh, yeah, goodbye, Fergus, and rest in peace. There is a nice little tribute to him on um, MCV. UK.com, so um, kind of a little obituary and a few nice quotes and stuff in there. So. Yeah, from guys like Dave Perry and, you know, mm-hmm. really big industry uh, players. So, yeah, if you want to read some, uh, some memories of Fergus, you'll find that in the show notes this week as well. Now, next story. Um, have you seen Google Groups before? No. It sounds like something really old, like MySpace <laughs> <laughs> groups. <laughs> well, what it is, it's, it used to be a website called uh, Dejar News. Deja News in like the late 90s. Rings a bell. Well, they used to um, archive use groups. So you remember Usenet? Um, yeah, was Usenet often... was pre-internet, wasn't it? it yeah. was, uh, well, sorry. I remember when, when I first got online, like in the mid-90s, um, use groups were quite made quite a big deal of then, even when the web was, was first around, because mm. it was more, before discussion forums really started, this is where you went. Yeah. So I remember first hearing about it on, um, there was a late night BBC show when like the World Wide Web first started to get big, and it was called The Net. And there is okay. three episodes of this on, um, on YouTube, if you want to look at it. But they have a guy who was, he was all over when the web first started, called a Dave Winder, or Wavy Dave, he used to call himself. <laughs> okay. But he basically lived his life online. He was kind of one of the first kind of bloggers and stuff, really, I guess. Okay. But he was really big on Usenet, and they gave away a book with a meager format called, um, like, the web comms and the whole online thing or something it was called. And in there, they were listing all these um, kind of weird use groups that you could go on. It was like, you know, there's a user group for everything, like alt.goats and you know, yeah, like yeah there was there was some very strange and, ones yeah so uh, wares and yeah yeah there was pretty much you know use group for anything you could imagine but um, like you said you know use groups predate the internet and deja news actually archived them from 1981 okay so what google groups is uh, getting back on topic is they basically bought out deja news probably about 15 years ago yeah so now what they've done is they've kept archiving usenet and they've got all the entire archives since 1981 on their servers. Oh, wow. So you can go back and see what people were discussing back then. But what Google have done is, they've done a little section here called Memorable Usenet Moments. Okay. So let's look for you. So 11th of May 1981 is their oldest article they've got. May 1981 is a post with the first ever mention of Microsoft. Um, is that the cease and desist letter? Bill Gates turned up <laughs> with this uh, letter at the uh, California Computer Club. A <laughs> bit further down, August 1981. The first review of the new IBM PC. So, yeah, where it all started, really, isn't it, in PCs? Uh, August 82, the first ever mention of the new Commodore 64. An announcement of Commodore buying the Amiga, like a rumour. Oh, they've just bought this weird dental company computer. July 1983, the first ever mention of this new singer, Madonna. Oh. (laughs) And you can go through Tim Berners-Lee's announcement of the World Wide Web project in 1989. Wow. The first mention of this new TV show, The Simpsons. (laughs) So you can go, there's pages and pages of this stuff. Our first mention of Google. So, it's like, it's like the like history it. of kind of modern culture. <laughs> it is. I mean, you look back and you can see, it's kind of surreal looking at them because <laughs> some of these, like um, the Tim Berners-Lee announcement, um, people have replied to it in like 2013 going, oh, I think this thing could be quite big. Because you can still reply <laughs> to these messages on there. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so, it's going to fail. You know, <laughs> so it's hilarious though. I mean, the... The review of the... I'll click on the first mention of the Commodore 64. Any opinions on the new Commodore 64 computer? I've seen it. I think it looks pretty neat. It comes with a whopping 64 kilobytes of memory. High graphics resolution, 320 by 200 pixels. Uh, It uses sprite graphics. The whole computer fits on your lap. (laughs) (laughs) And this guy here is talking about how he got one from Commodore, basically, he says. And he's talking about the, the keyboard has meta keys. And it really is small. The whole computer does sit on your lap. 
and it's got great colour definition. But yeah, this was posted, you know, 1982, August 82. This is amazing. And Usenet is still used today as well. So Mainly for it, binaries these days, admittedly. But. Yes, yeah. Um, <laughs> but you, you can use certain providers to read it, like Usenext, which mm. I, I use quite a lot. And uh, yeah, it's quite a cool system. And it's one of these ones that's kind of, I think it's like it's ignored by the authorities or it's kind of mm-hmm. just not noticed that it's still running. I don't think anyone thinks anyone would still be using it, to be honest. Well, even like, you know, I remember it used to be in, in Outlook. You know, yeah. Microsoft had a, a used group reader in there, but they took it out about 10 years ago, probably. Yeah, didn't they have Yahoo? Yahoo had a... Uh, they had their own groups thing, didn't they? I don't think that was part of it. But it was kind of like based on yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting if you just want to, you can click on any of these groups and they show you, um, Google organize it really well. So they've got a calendar and you can just click back through the years. So I was looking the other day about, you know, when Commodore went bankrupt, see what's happening at like Alt.Amiga in like, you know, May 1994. Well, so these are the Usenet changes. 4.5 gigabyte when it started in 1996. Mm-hmm. By 2016, it's 23.87 terabytes. Wow. (laughs) That's a lot of posts. (laughs) So, uh, obviously, like I said, with everything, we'll pop a link in the show notes if you want to do a bit of a digging back through the history of technology. It's quite an interesting look back on what people were talking about at the time. Now, uh, the Amiga CD32's had quite a bit of love recently with new releases. Yeah, it's it's just a growing fan base, I think, and uh, people are getting a lot more interested. Now, uh, this is Amiga J who's um, done a new little compilation for the uh, CD32, Liquid Kids and Snow Brothers. Now, Yes, uh, actually it's Snow Bros. Snow Bros. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> but um, it's really good, Snow Bros and Liquid Kids. These games were both unreleased, I think. So they were like really well done conversions, mm-hmm. like Paracel Stars or um, Rainbow Islands, is it? The yeah. Little, uh, little Kid. Yeah. They were really well done, but never released for some weird legal reason. And they got released last year on the okay. Amiga. And it's kind of like a putty squad kind of thing, is it? The yeah, yeah. And... I think they kind of one of the developers still had a copy or something and chucked it out there. But it's really, really well done. It's like you know a full release style. And I think they put it on the CD32 now. So. Yeah, well, that's what this is. Yes, it's it's a CD that you can download. Um, coded by Ocean Software, uh, Snow Bros. And I'm looking at a video here. I mean. I think it even looks better than like Bubble Bobble or Parasol Stars. It looks a lot smoother and the graphics look yeah, better. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really, really, really well done. And like the idea is that you can kind of, uh, I think, explode water on them and then the water travels around the whole place and knocks all the enemies out. It's quite <laughs> fun. Well, they've got, um, so they've got it's a CD that you download. There's an ISO file there or there's a, um, I think they've got a WHD load here, Slave as well, it says. So yeah, they're wicked arcade conversions, guys. Yeah. Nice to get some new CD32 software. So I've got my CD32 set up like permanently. Yeah. Now you're a big CD32 fan, as we've mentioned before, but it's cool getting new games for it because you just didn't for years, did you? No, not at all. And I've got a bit of a bust-up arm at the moment, so I can't do much playing, but I literally have like a line of CD32 games waiting to <laughs> go, you know. Looking at your arm, heal! Yeah. Good games to play! <laughs> That's it. <laughs> now, uh, this is quite an interesting story, Ravi. Sony making a power glove. What? <laughs> yes, so the power glove, if no one remembers this, it was a ridiculous um, item. It looked ridiculously cool. It was by Sega. What was that? No, it was Nintendo, wasn't Nintendo. it? Nintendo, oh, What was, what was the film it was on? It was The Wizard, was it? Yeah, with that guy of the Wonder Years. Yeah, and he's, <laughs> yeah. I remember <laughs> the power glove's so bad. Meaning yeah, like and he won the it. competition because he was wearing the power glove. But it was really bad, uh, supposed of external controller 
but uh, it looks like Sony's painted <laughs> uh, uh, real-life movements to be recreated in the game now, on we'll, a glove interface. We will just say they haven't they haven't actually bought the Nintendo design and not, yeah, not no, remade They're not going to remake that. Yeah, so... And I mean, I imagine it was that long ago. Patents expire after about like 20 years anyway. So I imagine, yeah. unless Nintendo have renewed them. But the virtual hand is uh, based on the finger positions. So mm. the virtual hand on the screen will be linked to a kind of fingery glove kind of thing. <laughs> it's got to be for VR, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So now every company's working on virtual reality right now. Um, and, come on, what was the last one that they had? It was Move, wasn't it? Oh, the PlayStation Move. Yeah, that was awful compared to what was on the market. So That was, a, you know, probably about five years ago when everyone was doing motion after the Wii, wasn't it? And the Kinect came out. I, I've got a PS3, but I never bought the Move thing because it seemed too complicated. You had to buy like, the camera separately and then the little like, one thing. Like you're t- and... holding two ice creams. Yeah, that's what it was like, wasn't it? <laughs> I didn't want to go skiing with it or something but yeah. yeah interesting though and i think you know for virtual reality you kind of do need that as well to be able to hold things because it always feels a bit you know holding a mouse or a joystick or something it takes you out of that experience i think yeah and i guess you know if it's recreating the hand actions it could mm-hmm. work really well um well, 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 we'll see <laughs> i've noticed uh and <laughs> there's a lot of people are doing uh, virtual reality adult games at the moment so uh okay. the, the possibilities are endless <laughs> oh, aren't <God>. they <laughs> yeah <laughs> Right, a new uh, Atari XL and XE game. Okay. Not something we've covered on the show before. This is a game called Hobgoblin. Uh, and this was an 8-bit game that came out on pretty much everything. It was out on the Amstrad, BBC Micro, uh, Commodore 64. Uh, but someone's actually ported this, one of the guys from the Atari Age forums. Okay, yeah, great um, forum, great yeah, forum. Very active forum. Um, and they've uh, ported the BBC Micro version to the Atari XL and XE. Oh, nice. This this looks really nice, actually. Yeah, uh, just for an 8-bit game is quite well developed. So it's um, there's a little preview trailer. They've retitled it as Hobgoblin 2 uh, for some reason. Yeah. Um, but it features, uh, apparently they've upgraded the graphics and stuff and there's going to be some different levels and that kind of thing in it as well. So Nice, yes. I'm quite impressed with this for the machine to be able to run this. I must admit I've never never had an Atari XL or an XE. But... No, I've, I've I had a 2600. Mm-hmm. That was you know, about it with my Atari experience. But the Atari 8-bits are a system that have got a lot of respect to this day, I think, aren't they? They're often spoken of very highly. Yeah, yeah, but I I think it's also that connection to the lineage of uh, arcade games and all the mm-hmm. old kind of Atari's classics that they had. Now, talking of uh, Atari in the new age, there has been a little system that we've been discussing over the last couple of weeks. It kind of... Uh uses a certain element from Atari, um, and that is the, the shells of the Atari Jaguar, and that seems that, that might just be about the only thing they have at the moment. Yeah, um, the drama continues to <laughs> unfold. <laughs> now, this is the uh, Coleco Chameleon. There's been a third prototype of it revealed now, apparently. Now, if you missed last week's show, they basically got busted um, with the innards of a Super Nintendo Junior, I think it was. They yep. eventually discovered that it was um, supposed to be a prototype of this new system that's going to play like um, dedicated cartridges. And Hidden all that. in a cardboard box, wasn't it? <laughs> Underneath the uh, thing. Yeah. So I think it was in the case of an Atari Jaguar, um, this mold. Now, they did kind of reply to that. Did you hear their excuse for why no, they did well, it? No, I didn't see that. But... So they did kind of get busted by the community. And they said, well, what we did is we used the back of a Super Nintendo circuit board, just the AV and the power connections, soldered onto our board because that was easier than making those connections ourselves. 
which okay, uh, yeah. sounds a bit sounds a bit of a strain. Surely making your own AV connection would be easier than trying to wire up a proprietary Nintendo one, you'd think. But but yeah, I was smashing a old <laughs> nest to bits to get the boards out. But you know, I, I'm, I'm not a circuit board designer, so yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if, if that's what they say. Uh, but someone did actually post a picture of the cartridge slot on a Nintendo, and it actually lines up exactly inside an Atari Jaguar shell, so uh. they reckon that it is. So they've actually been to another... Uh, gaming show now and, and revealed what is meant to be a new prototype and I don't know why these guys are doing this because the minute they post something online the guys that they're talking to here like it's mainly the Atari Age Forum again yeah they're talking to proper strong hard you know guys that are like looking at this for years yeah. and know all about everything these are hardcore yeah. technology guys who know yeah. consoles inside and out so <laughs> they posted some pictures on their Facebook page in a clear Atari Jaguar shell. So you can actually see the circuit board inside, claiming that this was like, you know, their latest prototype. And uh, some keen eyed guy on the Atari Age forum had this um, video capture card. <laughs> and uh, looking at the pictures of this capture card and the circuit board inside this new Coleco Chameleon prototype, they look exactly the same. Yeah, the chips are all lining up, the <laughs> capacitors are like in exactly the same positions. It's uh, really bad. Have you got the model number for this capture card? <laughs> uh, the HICAP50B CCTV DVR <laughs> capture card. So what, do you think they're actually using it like to capture stuff from it or do you think they just literally found a crap board and put it in there so it looks like there's a bit of circuit board in there? Well, after they posted this and someone rumbled them in about an hour or two, they deleted their Facebook post. <laughs> So, Do you think they're going to go on Kickstarter and get any donations at all after this? They've shot themselves in the foot because they've done a massive media campaign and it's gone all over all the websites and now they're releasing these prototypes that are not prototypes. <laughs> it's crazy. Well, I'm looking at the comments on um, Reddit's retro gaming subreddit here. Guys are like, you know, I was quite interested in this at first, but no, and now I think the whole thing's a scam. I won't be back in it. And there's so yeah. many people saying that now, you know what I mean? The small crowd that was interested anyway, yeah. they're just scared of that and go away from it. I wouldn't trust these people, sorry. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't give would... them my money or credit card details or anything. With And the thing is, you know, we've, we've tried to give a, a, a kind of opinion mm -hmm. that's neutral and the evidence <laughs> is <laughs> not looking just, good, is it? No. <laughs> so... I mean, don't get me wrong, it's a nice drama for the show, isn't it, to be talking about this every week, but... It is, and I think the drama will probably continue <laughs> if they are going to do a Kickstarter. I just don't get why, why isn't this guy learning? I, like... I don't know. I think it's a series of guys as well, because after the first one, the retro VGS, mm. you would have thought they would have given up, but they've gone through... It's like they're coming up with crazy schemes <laughs> <laughs> every time. But it's like, even this guy here is saying, you know, they deleted it off Facebook. A post can be up five minutes, but people save it, screen grab it, they'll post it on all these forums. And let's be fair, forums like the Reddit, Retro Gaming subreddit and Atari Age, they're their exact demographic who would have but bought it. you know, if system. they've been doing so much marketing as well, then their Facebook's going to have a massive following. So, like, it just works against them. Yeah, what's that old saying? No publicity is bad publicity. I think maybe not in this case, though. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, the uh, ongoing drama of the uh, Coleco Chameleon continues. Yeah, I'm sure we'll keep you up. <laughs> What's going to be in the case next week? Yeah, yeah. God knows. <laughs> Place your bets. Yeah. Now, a giant Game Boy has been spotted in our fair city of Nottingham. Yeah, this is this is quite a cool idea, actually. Some boys uh, that own this bar. And this is an article in uh, our local paper, the Nottingham Post. James Irons and his brother Jonathan mm -hmm. have built a giant 
Game Boy, and this is out of wood. <laughs> They've created a Game Boy. It's made of wood. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking at the picture here. It looks absolutely spot on. Yeah, apart from the Nintendo logos. <laughs> well, that is one thing, though. Nint- Nintendo is so precious about their brand and everything, aren't they? Yeah. I think they see it as more of an offence to actually nick their logo than make a clone of their console. <laughs> That's it. But they've they've installed, I think it looks like a, maybe a 32-inch TV or something. It's quite big mm-hmm. as the monitor. And they've got a full emulator on there. And then you can go to the bar and ask for a little wireless controller and sit there and play <laughs> on this giant Game Boy. So, yeah, it, it is... Pretty much a massive replica of the Game Boy. Game Boy. <laughs> the Game Boy. And looking here, there's a guy who's probably like, you know, say he's like five foot eight. This thing's taller than him on the wall, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. He could wear it as a backpack <laughs> or like sail on it, Dan. <laughs> Although I'm kind of disappointed in what you said just then, that you get a wireless controller. I thought you went up and pressed the big buttons up. <laughs> oh, God, no, you probably get RSI or something. <laughs> but we should go to this bar, have a drink and take a photo for you guys. Yeah, so another reason to like us on Facebook. We're going to do that. Yeah. Uh, Suede Bar in Hockley, it's called, if you're ever in town. Nottingham's quite good for that kind of thing, though. There's another bar that we went in in, in Hockley, which is a part of town. And uh, they've got like a PS2 and an Xbox original. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. They had, um, oh, they've got, in Brewdog, they've got like Mortal Kombat and mm-hmm. you can sit and play there. And, With yeah. real ale. Yeah, yeah. And there's a whole cookie lounge bar that we have that has a. Uh, GameCubes in there and they've got uh, those Pac-Man tables and everything. Yeah, yeah. Really good. Neo Geo stuff. So if you're ever in town, drop us a note, we'll give you the tour. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. Now, last week we were talking about game soundtracks getting released on vinyl and I think probably my favourite beat-em-up of all time, this, on the uh, Mega Drive, Streets of Rage 2. Oh, yes, and this soundtrack is just a banger. Oh, a- Absolutely amazing. Like, you know we were talking about collecting vinyls mm-hmm. and how only... Real collectors would buy them and stick them on the wall. Well, I'm going to get this one, definitely. <laughs> like, if you look at the vinyl as well, it's white on the actual vinyl. Blood. And they've got blood splattered <laughs> all over it. It's really cool. And even the last one looks a bit grubby, like uh, it's been used to like, decapitate someone. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> and the art on the front of it, on the album cover, just is beautiful. It's, it's yeah, really it's, well done. It was done. the Mega Drive cover, isn't it? But, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, enlarged. And this is only twenty four ninety nine. I think with this kind of stuff, though, you buy this now, like twenty four ninety nine. This is going to be worth hundreds in years to come, isn't it? Totally, like yeah, because there'll only be a limited amount of these. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm going to get one. <laughs> yeah, well, it's again, it's again. You know, we mentioned last week that it's not really one of these things that you're going to sit down and play regularly, but it's a collector's item. And I think a game like Streets of Rage Two, which out of all Mega Drive games, that's got to have one of the most hardcore loyal fan bases. Yeah, and it's, just a, a rave soundtrack as well, it's, pumping Euro techno. Yeah, yeah, yeah so, definitely. Uh, yeah, dude. I want to DJ out and about with that. <laughs> yeah, just drop Streets of Rage and do a rewind. <laughs> you, you do video game music nights sometimes, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I've done a few a few kind of DJ ones. It's hard to get people to accept it. If if you kind of don't say video game music and you say, you know, oh, yes, uh, electronic minimalism or something, <laughs> then they'll, they'll accept it more. <laughs> video game music, they'll be like, uh, you know, well, it's anyone, a bit of a snobbery. Anyone that came to Amiga 30 in Peterborough would have seen you. Tell us about your, your, your Amiga deck setup. Oh, yeah, so these are PT-1210s, which is this kind of software where you can play mods on it and uh, you can play them like turntables. So you Pitch know, control. Pitch control, yeah, you can loop on them, you can uh, go back a couple of tracks to turn off certain tracks so you could just have the drums running on one, bass line off the other. And these 
can all be loaded off floppy. So you just get two Amigas a mixer and you're sorted. You can just play. And I showed it to Alistair Brimble, Tim Wright, <laughs> all these guys, and they were amazed. You know, I was remixing Brimble's tunes live on the spot in real time. We had this back room at the Amiga 30 show, didn't we? With like, um, where we did our interviews. The scene video. room. <laughs> yeah, the scene room. We had like demos running on an Amiga 500, didn't we? And yeah. Ravi there with his, uh, his 1200s doing. Um, Mod, mod music and that so yeah it was pretty cool wasn't it nice little rave going on in the back room there yeah yeah I, I'd, I'd love to do it in a club but I don't think it would be, it'd be an empty <laughs> club <laughs> with me playing Amiga music Although there is a guy isn't there who um, he, he's he's posted some videos on YouTube of him doing club nights using Amigas oh god C-Tricks yeah that's him C-Tricks yeah he's an Australian guy yeah but he also makes controllers so he's crazy he's made uh, like a controller out of SNES pads and all different game pads kind of like a giant guitar, <laughs> you know. Uh, he's really into his computer music. But with the Citrix guy as well, his his music's really good. And I remember I was reading a a couple of these YouTube comments because he posted this video here in two thousand nine. He's like, "Oh yeah, yeah. What I'm going to do is I'm going to post some mods for you to download." And he hasn't done them yet. Yeah. This one here. Listen, this. <laughs> this is all off an Amiga. Let's get to it. Bit. <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> this is off an Amiga five hundred. I'm not surprised, you know. <laughs> and he's there in his Commodore t-shirt too. Yeah. And like the crowd's all like teenagers. Yeah, so this is it. this is like Blip Festival, mm -hmm. which um, is a massive, just Amiga scene <laughs> music <laughs> festival. And if you watch Viva Amiga, actually, they do a giant section on this. Okay. So there is a whole big section when Viva Amiga comes out about the kind of mod scene and how they're continuing to do it. Because there was a lot of artists that... Use the Amiga later on. Super Sharp Shooter was written on that. Mm -hmm. um, oh, God, there was loads of tunes that were yeah, written Afro on that. Yeah, Aphrodite did, didn't he? Aphrodite yeah, did some was... tunes, you know. Even like uh, Calvin Harris, his first album was all made Yeah, on yeah, uh, Acceptable in the 80s yeah. was done on that. Yeah, mm -hmm. there was uh, quite a few tracks. What, Timberland stole that track, Nelly Furtado one yeah, as well. Yeah, that was a Commodore yeah. 64 song, I think that was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. I think because electronic music, you know, it got so clean, after a while, and now I think people are trying to make it a bit gritty and grimy again. Get back again. to the dirty kind of yeah. uh, bass lines and, yeah. Well, the 8-bit sound chips had that really raw nastiness, didn't they? So. Well, well, that's what Brimble was saying to us. Brimble was mm. saying, you know, sometimes when he was recreating his music, it was too clean. Yeah. So he had to get a bit dirty. <laughs> that's the Amiga sound, you know, that kind of 8-bit horrible sampling. <laughs> it's <laughs> intentionally downsampled. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Pretty cool though. So if you want to see this uh, C Trick Sky, he's very impressive. Yeah, he's not really as impressive is. as Ravi, obviously on uh, the uh, on the Amiga. Well, decks. yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll have to upload a mix soon. That's the one thing that I need to do: get it set up and then do a like mix for YouTube. Yeah, how, how yeah. you getting on with your your beat mixing and all that these days on it? Oh, well, beat mixing, no problem yeah. with that. I'm finding the right tunes to beat mix because it's very hard with Amiga tunes because mm. they're all written by madmen on different tempos. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> it's like kind of crazy. You nailed it there. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Now, someone's celebrating his 20th anniversary. Um, any child of the 90s will love this. Pokemon. Yes. 20 years, really. 20 years. Yes, 20 years of Pokemon with 277 million games sold worldwide. <laughs> it's crazy. Well, you know, a lot of Nintendo consoles in particular, um, you know, I think Pokemon has, has got to be one of the biggest system sellers for... Well, I, I remember when Red and... Blue came out. And I didn't have a Game Boy, so I emulated it on my 4000. <laughs> there was no sound, but this massive CRT. Did it work? Yeah, I completed it. Oh, no <laughs> it way. was great. But I remember they even did bring out like special limited edition N64s, though, didn't they? Uh, yeah, yeah. There, there was like a Pikachu one, and I remember that. And 
my first girlfriend was obsessed with Pokemon. Yeah. And even like, you know, she's like uh, like 17 years old, but she had like, you go into a room, it'd be like a 10-year-old's room. Like yeah. Pikachu and all the walls and all that. You'd be like, oh, okay. It's a bit she, weird, she'd be doing all the impressions. <laughs> Gotta catch them all. Yeah. Is, is there an upcoming new Pokemon game? Well, there is, because they're okay. saying here that it's like nearly 60 million pounds in revenue. Uh, 60 billion, mm-hmm. sorry, from Pokemon, which is like Hello Kitty levels. You know, it's yeah, crazy. And so they're releasing Sun and Moon, which is a Pokemon Sun and Pokemon Moon, and their new Pokemon stories. Okay. So they haven't released for a few years new mm-hmm. Pokemon stories. So this is really good. Wasn't meant to be a Pokemon Z. I kept reading about that. Oh, there's so many, dude. I couldn't remember. <laughs> you need to speak to my girlfriend or something because I just. Uh... Let's get her on next week. Yeah, yeah. Po- have a Pokemon expert. <laughs> well, I know pretty much anyone that was a Nintendo fan in the mid to late 90s, um, they always talk about how, you know, fond memories of Pokemon and. Yeah. I think it's cool to keep the legacy going as well because, you know, the 3DS has probably got a new generation. Definitely. I I think Pokemon probably helped Nintendo for for a long time, you know. I think outside of Mario, it's probably the biggest franchise on. Yeah, when they lost the Final Fantasy. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, Harvest Moon and Pokemon probably brought them back to. But no Pokemon game on the Wii U. Yeah, forget the Wii U. Yeah, (laughs) I I think Nintendo have. (laughs) And our final story this week then before uh, our chat with Mike Clark from Psygnosis. Uh, McDonald's, McDonald's virtual reality glasses. Yeah. Well, uh, now what are they calling them? Happy Hap- goggles. Happy goggles. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. So you all know about um, Google Cardboard, which yeah. is a kind of cheat way of doing virtual reality. Well, to appeal to the kids, now McDonald's are able to turn a Happy Meal into <laughs> a VR goggle case. I'm not sure how I feel about this. Because uh, you're going to be eating your chips and burgers from <laughs> there and then sticking it on your eyes. Yeah, <laughs> grease all over your forehead. Yeah, like grease grease uh. layers between the... Uh... <laughs> well, if you haven't tried Google Cardboard, have you, have you got a Google Cardboard headset? Have you tried it? No, no, uh, I think the Oculus Rift's the only uh, 3D stuff that I've done and that was the original dev kit. So, well, yeah. bearing in mind, you can actually buy... Um, a Google VR cardboard headset for three pounds. Yeah, that's what they're saying here, that the Happy Meal thing will be priced at three pounds as well. (laughs) So it looks like all all you do, if you haven't used it before, it's two lenses pretty much, and you just need a bit of cardboard to kind of blank out the light in the room. A little headband on it as well. Some of the more advanced ones have um, a little button that you can press that kind of clicks into your phone. Yeah, because I saw that Oculus did a... One with Samsung recently. Mm-hmm. LGR did uh, Lazy Game Reviews, did a video over it, and that was really well integrated. It had like side button controls yeah. and everything. Yeah. Well, I got, um, I was in Red Five, you know, the gadget shop. Yeah. And they have uh, some headset they sell in there for, I think it's about 20 quid. So it uses Google Cardboard, but it's, um, it's made out of proper plastic. Yeah, yeah. And you've got a nice head strap, and it's kind of got a compartment that fits most phones. So. You can actually get cardboard on the iPhone now. They released it last year, version oh, two. Okay. It's not Android only anymore. So you literally just put your phone in there. You plug your earphones into your phone as well, so you get the sound. Yeah. yeah. And it is really immersive. I was like walking around the room and like feel like there's demos of you flying over cities and all that. And no lag. No, no lag at all. Because oh, I mean, wow. it's just software on your phone, but it's split screens like 3D kind of. Does it? Does it like track your eyes then? Or it tracks it... the movement of the phone. Ah, okay, so, so it's through the... Uh, accelerometer. Yeah, yeah, the gyroscope. So, but I mean, I think most phones, you know, pretty much all phones now have got front-facing cameras, so that could be something they do in the future, eye tracking yeah. and that kind of thing. But I think as someone who, you know, I, I remember trying virtual reality when it first came out back in the early 90s at an arcade, and I think I had to pay like, you know, two pounds to go at it or something yeah, back yeah. then. And it was all, it was Amiga-based, wasn't it, the early Yeah, video? yeah. 
the was it virtuality they were called that was the one with amiga 3000s yeah and um yeah, but then yeah. kind of the ass fell out the market in vr didn't it yeah totally and uh, 20 years later it's finally back again but the fact that now you can basically make your own vr headset for three to five pounds yeah that's pretty amazing because i mean it's not going to be up to the quality of like a, an oculus rift but an oculus rift like what how much is that Oh wow! Well, the dev units were like twelve thousand pounds or something, weren't they? Well, the original, yeah, dev ones. The new ones, I'm not sure. It's about six hundred quid, I think. With six hundred, yeah, yeah, the consumer ones. But even then, you know, if you want to build your own rig for VR with a headset, you're probably talking about at least three grand, maybe four grand. Yeah. You should try something with your Raspberry Pi stands. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got McDonald's, you can get them for three quid. Yeah, yeah, so, there uh, you go. There you go. Which one are you going to pick? <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you for listening to this week's show, guys. Of course, you can get the Retro Hour every Friday off our website, theretrohour.com. Uh, remember to like us on Facebook yes and uh, review us on iTunes if you can as well yeah we're loving the uh, feedback we've got on there at the moment as yeah well, really so, um, nice appreciate all the comments guys absolutely now let's leave you with this week's chat uh, we're going to be catching up with Mike Clark and getting some stories from the days of Psygnosis uh, finding out about the Playstation 1 prototype oh yes that, that, that's a very good story <laughs> actually yeah uh, and also some um, unreleased Amiga stuff as well and uh, the story of Microcosm which should be interesting yes from Amiga to Playstation we have Mike Clark So, uh, well, we'll start at the beginning then. Um, so, what first got you into computers? That's a very good question. I can actually remember the first time I saw a computer and didn't really know what it was. Some sort of typewriter. I was at a friend's house and he'd got one. I ended up just typing in a load of information like, um, you know, name, Mike Clark, uh, address, and so on. Didn't really know what I was doing with it. Uh, didn't really pay any attention to it until well, maybe a few months later and my auntie got the same computer these were both commodore 64s by the way right nice uh and because these were sort of coming about now um i must have only been about i don't know i was probably about eight at the time uh mum and dad asked if i wanted to get a computer still didn't really know what i would do with it but i'd played a game at my auntie's house so i thought yes okay i'll have one of those uh and uh, it was a toss-up uh on that one christmas between a commodore 64 and a sword m5 I've never heard of a sword. <laughs> did you make the right choice then? I certainly did. Um, th- there was an advert in the paper for it because at the time there were, there were loads of computers. It, you know, there was no real, yeah. um, there was no idea of what was going to happen, who was going to be successful. So there were so many different brands, and you would get, you know, in the newspaper, oh, there's this new computer you've never heard of, and it's amazing. And I, I don't know, I just like the look of that, and it, it was it was very very close to to getting that. But I went to the Went for the Commodore 64 purely because my auntie had one. So what kind of stuff did you do on your 64? I played games. <laughs> that was essentially it, really. Uh, I tried doing bits of programming, but I didn't really get it at the time. I did write a uh, really, really terrible text adventure that was completely linear. Uh, it, it was so badly written, it really was. I remember doing it. It was about a 1,000 lines. It took me ages. And then, <laughs> and then I played it. It had about three rooms in it. I thought, this is so bad. I, I don't really understand what I'm doing. I remember a little piece of software that used to have a text editor kind of creator. And uh, if you get lost, it would just say you are lost in the swirling mist. (laughs) (laughs) Genius game design. So you got into making music then eventually? I did. Well, um, when I think back, I realised that I must have inherently been, had a musical affinity in some way. When I was really small, I'm talking like, you know, five or six years old. I used to have a load of Disney uh, albums. I don't, they must have got me for Christmas or something like that. And my sister had a had a stereo with a with a record player on it, and I used to sit there with the headphones on in the corner of the room and do nothing else 
but just listen to these Disney albums. Mm-hmm. And that's at a very, very young age. Uh, and later on, I, I, I always, always had a, a sort of passing interest. I'd always know everything in the charts. And I basically knew the, the entire top 10 down to possibly top 20 and everyone and everything about it. But still, I never made any music. But I did get hold of the music maker on the Commodore 64, the one where you plug the keyboard over the oh, top. Oh, remote, yeah, just sat on the top, didn't it? A bit of plastic. Uh, I remember trying to play little bits and pieces with that. Didn't really get very far. Uh, and then because of that, I got a, uh, a Casio SK-1 uh, um, in the next Christmas. And that was a little sampling keyboard, and that was amazing. And I started you know, playing around a bit bit more with that. But it really wasn't until the Amiga, until I, I started doing actual music when... When the ultimate soundtracker came along, how did it go from just doing it as a hobby to um, as a job then? Well, brute force and luck, really, uh, because I always used to just play games. I, I mean, I, I was totally obsessed with my Amiga. Uh, I would come home from school, I would go straight upstairs, and I would just be playing on my Amiga. And then I used to go to this computer club, and you'd, we'd just copy games. But I copied the ultimate soundtracker, and when I got that back home and put it on to see what it was, I didn't really have a clue what it was. It took me ages to try and even load anything in. And then once I could see it playing, you know, I, I realised, hold on, this, this, this is some sort of music thing. And once I, I sort of got the hang of that, I, I, I won't say I stopped playing games, but my, my game-playing time went right the way down. And instead, I just used to come home, go straight upstairs and just do music, and that was it. When, once I'd done enough and I felt that they were good enough, I would give copies of the music on discs to people at the computer club and because of that one of the discs found their way to somebody who ran a company in Birkenhead who then got hold of my details and phoned me up and says do you want to do some music what was that was last last ninja 2 oh that was last ninja 2 i was gonna ask yeah well after having the the commodore 64 you know last ninja was a big deal so when somebody says do you want to do the amiga one yeah what setup were you using at the time then to do that conversion, I went into their offices. I was still at school, so during the half-term holiday, I went to their office and I had a, I had the Commodore 64 there and a tape recorder, and I, I taped all the music, and then I had, uh, I was up to Noise Tracker then, uh, the one where you could press the caps lock light and it would all turn pink, and I used Noise Tracker and just copied it basically, uh, and I had 40k per tune. And I think they had to, were they? No, they were only three channels. They could be in four channels. 40k per tune, and I got paid £40 per tune, which for 16-year-old me was quite a lot of money. Pound a kilobit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would have liked more money and more memory. It really was restricting. Where did you get your samples from back then, then? Was it those? Everyone used like, the STO1 and STO2 discs back then, didn't they? The only place you could get samples from were STO1, which as far as I'm aware was the only actual official one that came with Soundtracker. Mm-hmm. And then from ripping samples from other games and demos. Hmm. Uh, I think, I'm not sure if I had a sampler at that point. I don't think I did. I don't think I'd got a sampler because they were quite expensive at the time. And I was still at school, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it really was just getting bits and pieces from uh, other games and demos. I also sort of invented chip sounds uh, around the same time as a bunch of people. I used to play around with Audio Engineer. And on that, you could play a loop of a sample, but you could draw into it with the mouse while it was playing. And because of that, I realised that I can have really, really tiny, you know, like 30-byte sounds and use those as notes. So what I, what I did in Last Ninja 2, I'd play two of them together and I'd just pitch one up slightly so I'd get a chorus effect so it's not just a dry, single tone. It's actually quite a, quite a nice sound. So that worked out quite well. How did that lead you to working for Psygnosis then? The same computer club, actually. One of the friends that I'd made there, he got a job at Psygnosis as a tester. 
because I was in the Wirral and, you know, Psygnosis was just in Liverpool. I actually started doing external games testing because of him, so he was in the QA. I think he might have been the first. No, I think there were maybe three people in QA at the time, something like that, three or four. And they needed some extra resource, so I, while I was still at school, I would get beta versions of some of the games and then just fill in bug sheets. And I can't remember how much I got for that. Maybe it was a pound a bug or something like that. I can't remember the, the actual amount. And then the same friend of mine, uh, obviously I'd, I'd been doing music. I'd, I had like 100 tracks at this point that I'd done. And so when uh, Bill came in with the first demo of Bill's Tomato game, when that got signed, he stepped up and said, oh, I know someone. And uh, so Bill got in touch and I said, yeah, I'll do that. And that got me my first Cygnosis job. What was the culture like at Cygnosis then, though, working, working in that company? I mean, even now, it, it, it does seem just like a big family. There's something really strange about the dynamic that, that we had there, probably because it was it was a very innovative place. You know, it, there was always uh, funding for doing all the graphics stuff and you know, getting the silicon graphics machines and doing all the renders and intros and things like that. But also, I think because we were really at the... The, the, the transition period of where, where games really became massive and there was a sort of there was a sense of excitement with new bits of hardware and so on I mean I remember when we got the the prototype for the Amiga 4000 mm-hmm. and that, that was like oh, how many colours that's amazing <laughs> that was you know it's good we had things like that we had extra bits of hardware and, and new things coming out but in terms of the people themselves there was just something about Cygnosis it was a very very tight unit I think when I joined there were this was in uh, September 92 I think there were about 50 people because I remember that in that very first Christmas party, there's probably a bit less than that actually because they would have hired a few more over those coming months. In that very first Christmas party, there was a massive pass the parcel ring with 50 people in it. <laughs> but that's that's the sort of thing. I mean, I don't think you'd get that in normal companies, but that, that's the way it was. Everyone sort of knew each other quite intimately. It was, it was a really sort of nice place there early at the beginning. From your uh, description at Amiga 30, um, mm-hmm. uh, kind of... It sounded like the games came first and the uh, staff officers didn't really uh, come first. And, yeah, uh, well, that the, was a problem with the expansion. The security as well. That was, uh... that was not, not a good time, that. No, that was, yeah. The, the sheen did sort of did come off it a little bit over that period of time. So right at the beginning, when I first joined, that was, uh, trying to think what had been released. It was just before Shadow of the Beast 3 came out, I think. That might have been a few months after I joined. Um, and it... it as the company grew, the dynamics changed and we had to open a satellite office. And because there started to be so much work to do with audio, uh, at that point I'd just become full-time audio person. So I did the sort of game evaluation thing for probably about nine months. And that was a lot of stuff. I did a lot of design work and, and, and all sorts of things really, and, and audio as well. But when it got to the point where we were doing microcosm, that there needed to be somebody doing full-time audio. So I got sort of shoveled off to the other building uh, to work on full-time audio then. And, yeah, that was not really the nicest place in the world. That was uh, – it was pretty dirty. I think it used to be an old um, architect's office, and it it was like the carpets hadn't been changed for probably 10 years. Uh, the, the windows were dirty. It, it was just horrendous. It was really, really nasty. Yeah, And then we were, uh... we were all in there, crammed in there, and, and we got bought by Sony, and then – we got all the film tie-ins pushed on us, and it, it was it was not nice. It really wasn't. Doing lots of work we didn't want to do in a very short space of time, and taking on too many projects. It was it was taxing to say the least. And then of course we we left, uh, and uh, 
we left it in an even worse state. And um, before that, before we did leave, we had a break in and uh, all of uh, mine and Tim's music gear got stolen. No way. And uh, it's, it, it was a funny place at that point. I would say the growth, when, when companies grow that quickly, uh, it's hard to keep track of everything that's going on and things start to sort of splinter and go a bit funny. And it was the case that we, we couldn't really get anything resource-wise. So we were just palmed off in these horrible rooms. We, they sounded terrible. And we, we had no equipment. We just had Amigas. And it was getting to the point now where we had to do more than that. I mean, I'd, I'd started doing Super Nintendo stuff then, and then we had the Mega CD, so we had to start doing CD audio. But they hadn't bought us any equipment for this. So we had to bring our own gear into the office, and it all got stolen. They then asked the question, what were you doing bringing your own gear into the office? Well, you wouldn't buy us any, so you'd better pay up. So they had to pay us for everything that got stolen, and they weren't even insured, so it came out of the company's own bank account. But after that, you know, things did change. What did you think about Microcosm as a game? Because there was a load of hype about it at the time, and I know it was one of the launch titles for the CD32. That was a... Well, the thing about the CD32 version is that it was released quite a long time after after the original Microcosm on the FM Towns. Okay. And what people probably don't understand about it is that the work that was done to create the FM Towns one in the first place was really incredibly intensive. So the CD32 one was just, it was a port. It was a port of a game that already existed. And the existing game was a technical marvel considering what, what was done. Um, but as a game, you know, it, it was difficult to, to, to get something that was that playable because basically we're just streaming video off, off the CD and we have to try and make a way to make that work. But one of the things that people don't realise is how much had to be done. There was no support whatsoever. There was no video compression. There was no audio compression. Everything literally, literally had to be written from scratch. So all of the scenes that came out uh, the, the artists would do renders on the silicon graphics. All of the tools had to be written internally to convert that. The the frames, uh, I know John Gibson, very old programmer who used to work at Imagine, he had to write, he had to invent a video encoding system that would get it into, you know, small enough space for it to fit onto the CD and to stream off the, the single seeds, uh, single speed CD fast enough. It was only, only 150k a second. So there was a lot more that went into the making of, of Microcosm than just... Uh, a bunch of sprites on a, on a, on a video playback because when it was originally made, none of that existed. The whole thing had to be written from the ground up, all of the technology behind it. And so, as I say, the CD32 one, it suffered because by the time the CD32 one came out, other people had done, you know, some more interesting things with, with the CD format. It was awkward for me because streaming the video, we couldn't stream any audio at the same time. There, were, there, there was no audio compression. MP3 hadn't been invented then, mm -hmm. so there was nothing really we could do. So I did sounds for cutscenes and during the game on the original FM Towns version there was no music and on the CD32 one Tim had to write music in ProTracker because then we could play that over the top of the, the CD stream. All a different time it really was, it was all so very <laughs> difficult still very difficult to make games but it was even more so back then. I remember seeing a really epic demo, it was a game called uh, Planet Side do you remember anything about that? I certainly do yeah, it wasn't really a game, um, it was more of just a, another showy tech demo some of the people that we had early at Cygnosis were incredibly clever. And the Planetside demo was this sort of fractal landscape generation that, that one of them had, had written. And this, when I, when I mentioned before that Cygnosis was all very innovative, this is the sort of thing that happened internally. And a lot of the stuff you wouldn't see outside um, 
a lot of the graphic stuffs and tests and so on, there was all sorts of things that were getting done. And this was sort of part of that. There was this idea for this game and this fractal generator that we could generate frames to make an animation of. And then we had renders coming off the, uh, I think it was using uh, Cinema 4D at the time on the Amiga. Yeah. So there were renders done for that. And there were these, you know, huge, big ideas for, oh, we could do this and we put that together. But fundamentally, it was really just a, a sort of... Um, animation that was put together to show what might be possible. I don't really think it could have ever become an actual game. Not anything more than what Microcosm would have been, like the streaming landscape with, with sprites over the top. Not at the time, anyway. But nevertheless, it was an indication of what, what we were looking towards, and this is one of the reasons that Sony bought Cygnosis, because we were doing all this sort of stuff and testing with the CD formats and storage media and so on. And it made us very attractive for doing PlayStation when it was coming out. Because I remember standing, I think I was in Comet, and I still remember it to this day, seeing Planetside running on an, uh, an Amiga with a CD-ROM drive. My jaw dropped. I'd never seen anything <laughs> like it before. Yeah, I mean, it was amazing. Obviously, I had the same feeling seeing those sorts of things appear on the Amiga. I mean, when I, when I went into Cygnosis, some of the stuff the artists doing was just amazing. I remember uh, Jim Bowers, one of the artists, he'd, he'd done this uh, recreation of, of, of the, the intro to Terminator mm-hmm. on, on Cinema 4D on the Amiga with all of the, the robots and the shooting and the big sort of dropship and everything, it, it was amazing. And to see these running, obviously there were massive files coming off a hard drive, but you know, having them running on the Amiga, that was like, oh, this is incredible. <laughs> but people don't generally see that sort of stuff. It was all sort of just hidden away for, for testing. And uh, I, I think that the company was doing certain pitches to get licenses for games and so on with that sort of thing. It was very interesting. So another thing is, as well, uh, Eternal Psygnosis, which is a a project that you're involved with at the moment. Indeed I am. Yes, well, one of the things about uh, that that building that we were in is that it was, was, shall we say, the back end of Psygnosis, so all of the crap ended up going there. (laughs) So we had a storeroom that was just full of, of, well, actually there were two storerooms, the test department, the test room had a big sort of area full full of stuff, and then we had one in Century Buildings as well. So there was tons of stuff in there. When we were moving out, most of it was going to go in the bin and there was probably a, like 20 FM towns on the shelves and all sorts of Amiga bits of hardware and just loads of stuff. And for me, it, it was the whole thing about games and, and the Amiga and Cygnosis, it was all very important to me. And it just seemed wrong that all of this stuff was going to get thrown away. So before we left, I went into the storeroom before all the sort of cleaners came in, and I rescued every single floppy disk that I could find. And they were just strewn everywhere, over the floors, on the shelves, there were little boxes here, just ev- everywhere. So I got as much as I could, and end up being about 850 disks, I think. So I've, I've just carried them with me for the, for the past 20 years, with the intention of, of <laughs> copying all the data off onto hard drives so they can be easily viewed. And of course, never really got round to it. I did a, a few disks here and there, uh, but... You know, it's a it's a massive amount of of data to get through. So yeah, I they they've just been sitting there. And when the Amiga Thirty thing came along, uh, I said to Steve, who organised it, I said, "I've got all of these discs. Uh, do you want to do something with them?" And the ideas were, you know, maybe we could just give one away to all of the entrants or anything like that. But he wasn't really thinking of the fact that there were eight hundred of them. He thought maybe thirty or forty. Yeah. And so we kept them, and I auctioned some of them off to, uh, um, at the event, um, and the rest of them, Steve agreed with me that they were they were pretty important because this is stuff that would would not exist otherwise. Because the whole, I would say, the whole industry was very lax about it at the time. There was no importance placed on it. I, I sort of liken it to the fact that the BBC 
recorded over the tapes of Doctor Who. Yeah. Because they didn't place any importance to it. It was just some stupid little science fiction show that they, they broadcast in the 50s. And it was the same for us. This was just stuff that we did that wasn't really important. All we were looking for was what was ahead. You know, when you, we were always restricted by the limitations of the hardware, so we're always waiting for the next level to come on because we really wanted to do that. And once we got to it, all the stuff that before just got left and forgotten. And so nothing was really preserved. So that whole period of time, you know, it, it's, it's very sort of grey with regards to source code and, and versions of things. And all of this stuff would have been lost. So I, I'm, I'm very pleased that I, I kept hold of it. And, of course, Steve uh, offered to, to start doing the thankless task of, uh, of copying all of that data off the disks and, and seeing what's on it. I mean, I don't know what most of it is. There are some artists' backups, you know, like a 40, 50 disk backup of a complete hard drive. There are bits and pieces from um, FM Towns games and some Amiga stuff and old demos and betas and things like that. But for the most part, I don't really know what, what stuff it is. Like treasure hunting, th- isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, exactly, yeah. Yeah, who knows? And and one of the things that came out of that was, of course, the Star Wars stuff. Now, I didn't even know that, that we'd done a Star Wars game. Uh, it was about, from, from what I know, it was about eight or nine months before I joined that the Star Wars game was in process. And uh, all of the, the, the animations and stuff were on these discs. Now, these, these would have been completely lost. And I showed them to, to Jim. Jim was the guy who did the animations, and he remembers it all. And as I say, there's this sort of throwaway attitude. He's like, oh, yeah, I remember that. You know, he said, but to me, they, hold on, you were doing a Star Wars game? What? On the Amiga? <laughs> Tell me more. Even, even to Amiga fans, I've seen people go crazy on the forums about that. A Signosis Star Wars game. It's like, what? Yeah, yeah. they see the yeah. footage of it, and they're amazed. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very, it, it was surprising to me, but of course... It made sense to me then because there was a Star Wars game and Jim had done some stuff on uh, Terminator mm-hmm. and there was Blade Runner stuff. He'd done some Star Trek animations. And I'd seen the other ones. I, ju- I just never actually knew about the Star Wars, but they, they turned up on, on uh, the hard drive backup, uh, much to our surprise. <laughs> and so as far as we know, that's the only, the only reference to that that exists anywhere. There's no screenshots, there's nothing. That's the only actual data. So Eternal Signosis grew from, from this... Uh, bank of discs that, that I've got and the idea is to start releasing the data through that group uh, but it's become sort of a, a little sort of magnet to Cygnosis now we've got quite a lot of uh, a lot of the family is on there and I've posted some bits and pieces here and there and filling in bits of information so it's, it's definitely worth having a look um, How would you say it was different and uh, kind of how did it change when you joined with the Sony and the kind of PlayStation era? Uh, we, we actually got bought a lot earlier than people seem to realise. People, uh, I've, I've, I've seen people talking about it and as if, you know, it all went down after Wipeout when Sony bought us. Of course, Wipeout wouldn't have happened if Sony hadn't have bought us. Mm. You know, they, they bought us in, in 94, I think it was. So it was really quite early. And we, we they needed the, the, the time. We, we had to have the research time to, you know, get used to what was coming. And when... When, when it happened, there were, there, were, there were things that changed. We had this ATG group, the Advanced Technology Group, that was doing things, and that's sort of what the, the PlanetSide demo came out of and other sort of techie bits and pieces and tools and, and so on. And so they started doing the PlayStation stuff, and the, uh, the original PlayStation turned up, which was massive. I mean, it, it was like this gigantic photocopier with a big row of fans around it all on the bottom. It was huge. Now... Quite a bunch of us have talked about this, and we don't think that any photos exist anywhere. We can't find anybody who's got any photographs of it. One of the reasons was 
the security had to go up. So that massive PlayStation went into a locked room and the whole ATG group had a little uh, a keypad to get into the door then because yeah, well. Sony insisted on it. <laughs> I mean, it was really gigantic. It was huge. Uh, and we got a few versions over, over the months. And I, I remember that we got the first... Uh, the dinosaur demo, I don't know if you've seen that. It's a very early Sony demo on the PlayStation. Yeah. And originally it was just a head, but even the head was amazing. We all you know, we put the demo on. It's like, oh, my God, this is the future. It was, <laughs> it was incredible. It was just the head, not the body, no animations and nothing. And it probably it, it wasn't a very good frame rate. But then when the next one arrived, the, the frame rate had doubled. And there was this demo with loads of uh, basically Amiga bobs on it, just balls bouncing around the screen. But 6,000 of them. My God, this is going to change the world. It was amazing. And then, of course, we got the next one, and the, that one got a bit faster. And the box got a little bit smaller and so on. Eventually, we could actually use it because before then, there wasn't really much that could be done. There was a lot of work put into the tools and trying to get it into the... the just getting a, a polygon on the screen was a you know a major effort because there was literally no support, nothing at that point. And it, it really was a sign of things to come, though, because uh, when that happened, it wasn't. We weren't just focused on PlayStation. We were still Signosis, and we, we maintained independence for a really long time. It's just that we had the financial backing then. But we started looking at other stuff, and the 3DO came along, so we were looking at doing stuff on that. We had all these weird little bits of hardware and potential consoles that we were looking into. But the ATG group sort of kept the the PlayStation there behind closed doors, uh, and just worked and worked on that until eventually. Well, I won't say Wipeout popped out because it was a lot of hard work for a lot of people. But through their efforts uh, and through um, a, a, a reasonably obscure game called Matrix Marauders uh, was where Wipeout sort of started. Um, Wipeout, the idea, was a mixture of a bunch of games, mm-hmm. uh, mostly sort of F-Zero on the Super Nintendo. But Jim had made these, effectively, the Wipeout ships in Matrix Marauders. So they were taken... Uh, for this sort of anti-gravity F-Zero game that him and Nick Berkham had the idea for. And they started doing animations and stuff based on that, and then the programmers got up to speed, and then we started putting very, very simplistic models and having them running down a, a road and, and, and things of, of that ilk. And it all sort of developed and slowly grew, and we had to take on more people. Uh, and, yeah, the company just slowly got bigger and bigger from that point, and things really started to change. I remember I seeing, think- seeing Wipeout on the Hackers movie before it came out. Yeah, that, I'm not entirely sure how that deal happened or how they managed to see it, but that was really interesting. Mm. That was that was that was a big surprise. I think it was originally based on the the demo that that Jim did, um, which was let's see, I mean it was good. It was sort of fast moving. If you, if you sort of think about the beginning of that hackers video, it was sort of like that, and uh, we put the prodigy on it, so it was all bangy and nice, mm. uh, and it was sort of taking that video and making a big sort of long hacker movie type version for it. Uh, it took quite a while and I know that it was it was very close to the knuckle. We had to get a a separate company to do the audio for that PC music who were in Liverpool. I remember they were really, really up against the wire to get that done. But it got done, went to the film and uh, yeah, there it is forevermore. It was, a, it was a big surprise to me. The only good bit in the film. (laughs) (laughs) That's a bit hard. (laughs) Well, Mike, listen, it's been fascinating chatting to you and getting an insight into such an exciting time in uh, video gaming history. And uh, we'll keep an eye out for uh, more developments in Eternal Signosis. Can't wait to find out what we're going to see next from that. Well, yeah, let's see what comes out. I I mean, honestly, I don't know what what Steve's going to find in there. There's there's a lot of interesting stuff. There's going to be some interesting graphics. There's, There's a lot of labels on there where it'll say things like, 
I don't know, Bipper or Space Game, and you know they could be anything. They're, they're probably going to be um, little demos and test animations that the artist did and so on. So that hopefully there'll be some more very interesting stuff coming out of that. Thank you so much for talking to us then, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, been a pleasure.